Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a very special guest, Professor Sir David Haslam. Aside from being a GP for over 35 years, Sir David has held a number of very senior posts, including being both Chair and President of the Royal College of GPs and Chair of the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE. His book, Side Effects, How Our Healthcare Lost Its Way and How We Fix It, was published last year. It explores what good healthcare should achieve and how we can create a system that's affordable, fair and provides good quality care. This upcoming conversation was recorded last October and runs through some of the important themes from that book, including why the cost of healthcare will always continue to rise, why we need to better value primary care, tackling health inequalities, and whether we have our priorities right when it comes to end-of-life care. Some of the topics from the book and this conversation are themes that Sir David revisited in a piece for GP Online for the NHS's 75th anniversary last month, which was co-authored by Professor David Pendleton, a professor in leadership at Henley Business School. We've put a link to that article in the description for this episode. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome onto the podcast this week someone who will need very little introduction to many of our listeners, Professor Sir David Haslam. Sir David was a GP for over 35 years and he's a former chair and president of the Royal College of GPs as well as a former president of the BMA. He will also be well known to people from his role as the chair of NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, post he held from 2013 to 2019. In addition to all of that, in the late 80s and early 90s, he also wrote a regular column for GP magazine, which is what we were known as when we still had a print publication. Aside from his work on GPs, Sir David has also published many articles and papers over the years. In August, his book Side Effects, How Our Healthcare Lost Its Way and How We Fix It was published. It looks at the very thorny and complex issue of how we can make a healthcare system that is affordable, effective and fair. And that's what he's here to talk about today. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely my pleasure. Delighted to be with you. Before we get into talking about the book, you've obviously had a really illustrious career. But as I mentioned there, you spent 35 years working as a GP, which was one of your first proper jobs in medicine. Why did you decide to become a GP? number of reasons, I guess. My dad was a GP. I mean, that's a very common answer. He died when I was quite young. I was only a, a young teenager when he died. Probably had him on a real pedestal. I, I went to his funeral. I, I saw the immense affection with which his patients saw him. And then when I went to medical school, I learned very, very quickly that the hands-on specialties like surgery would be a disaster. And anyone who's seen my DIY <laughs> would know that. But I was really interested in everything else. And I was particularly interested in the whole person bit of medicine. I'm not terribly interested in organs, but I am very interested in people. And therefore, this general practice seemed absolutely the right place. And and I'm really glad that's what I did. So coming on to the book, I mean, I really enjoyed reading it. What I especially liked about it is you break down one of the big questions of the age, you know, how do we develop a fair, good and affordable healthcare system? But you kind of break it down into different areas that we need to consider. And then you look at each of those in a really clear and accessible way. But as I say, this is a really big issue. Why did you decide to write a book about this? Well, a number of reasons, I guess. One of the real triggers was a few years back, I had to give one of the Royal College's lectures. They're often based on the lives of previous distinguished doctors. And mine was the Mackenzie lecture. And I found that Sir James Mackenzie, who was a, a GP you know, in the 1800s, I read his biography and I saw what cases he dealt with in a typical morning surgery. And we've cured them all. Almost everything that turned up has been wiped out. And I don't have to tell any listeners that GPs are now busier than ever. Now, that's not just a question of the workforce. I mean, the workforce issue is is a massive one, of course. 
but I recognised in my career, almost whatever you did, more work appeared. It was, I could not envisage that 100 years from now, all our waiting rooms would be empty, everyone would be feeling happy, healthy and well, and there would be no need for doctors. Which then raised the question for me, so what are we trying to achieve? What's the end game of all this? I've had some of these roles you talked about, particularly with NICE. I met health ministers from around the world. I would often ask them, so what are you trying to achieve with your healthcare system? Because when I look at what you do, you put all your effort into the glossy, you know, having your photograph taken next to new MRI scanners and stuff like this whilst ignoring the bit that we know really makes a difference to healthcare, which is primary care. World Health Organization, World Bank, all the major players say invest in primary care. So what do healthcare systems do? They put most of their money into secondary care. So that was part of the driver, trying to unpick what are we trying to do and why do we go about it in such a weird way? Yeah, I was going to come on and ask you about primary care in a sec. But one of the things I think is really important, because this is the thing that kind of underpins the whole bit of the book, is that unlike many things around us are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, healthcare is just getting more and more and more expensive. And spending on healthcare is growing faster than the economy in most countries. The book does a really good job of explaining why that is. But lots of people think the answer to the NHS's problems is just more funding. And obviously, you know, it has suffered at the hands of austerity. But you point out that even if it does get more money, there will come a point when we can't afford it anymore. Yeah, I mean, even before the pandemic, and I really don't like to see the pandemic being used as the explanation for why we're in trouble at the moment, because we know that austerity was making major challenges to the NHS beforehand. Again, if you look at pretty well every country in the world, the spending on health goes up and up and up. And you've got effectively infinite demand. If you're not clear what you're trying to do, then there's going to be infinite demand. You've got finite resource that can only end badly. There's never going to be enough money to match. What I'm not saying is that there's great swathes of healthcare I want to stop doing. That's not the approach. It's just a little bit more clarity about prioritization and just a recognition of this global trend. You know, pundits who go on the radio and say, well, it's all down to it, the NHS model and we need a different model. We need social insurance or whatever. No, exactly the same problem applies to them, which is why I look at numerous countries in the book, because this isn't unique to the NHS. It's a global problem. It's one I've picked up pretty well everywhere. Because as you point out, and if you've got an insurance-based system, someone's still got to pay for it. So basically then premiums go up. So privatisation is not necessarily the answer to the problem. And I'm, I'm a passionate supporter of the, the values of the NHS. I talk a bit at the beginning of the book about the fact that about three or four years ago, I myself had uh, head and neck cancer, thoroughly miserable experience. But I remember genuinely, this sounds, this sounds so cheesy, but it's true. As I had my first course of radiotherapy, sort of sitting up from the radiotherapy bench thinking, isn't it amazing to live in a country where my fellow citizens just paid for that? And I've paid for their care as well. You know, it's it's such a mark of a civilised society. And so I'd hate to move away from that. But that doesn't mean we can't ask the tricky questions. I was going to ask you about your treatment. I hope you're well now. Yeah, hopefully. You you may have noticed I have to keep drinking because radiotherapy leaves you a bit dry, which is irritating, particularly when you talk as much as I do. (laughs) You do bring quite a lot of personal stuff into the book, you know, like you talk there about your cancer and you you mention your dad and him dying of a heart attack and your brother as well. And you kind of use them as examples to illustrate things through the book. How's your personal experiences of, of experiencing 
healthcare viewed or shaped the way you think about the cost of it and how we should pay for it? That's such a good question. I guess one of the things I recognised is the whole issue that every GP knows about a multimorbidity, about the complexity of modern healthcare. In fact, when I was a junior hospital doctor, one of my colleagues developed the same cancer that I've had, and he died pretty quickly, tragically. Now, I've been lucky enough that X number of years later, the treatment is available. My dad died 12 years younger than I am now. If he'd have lived, he'd have probably had time to develop cancer, but he didn't. Part of the reason I use the title side effects is a lot of what we're dealing with is the phenomenal side effects of the success of medicine. The whole multimorbidity agenda that every GP struggles with and, and hospitals particularly struggle with is a result of great success. The, the reason I chose side effects is the side effects of poorly thought through policies that tend to have unintended consequences that no one spotted when they were devising what they thought was a good idea. I found that really striking in your book, actually, when you talked about the reason we've got so much dementia now or rising case of dementia is because people are living long enough to get it because we've done so well at tackling heart disease. Yeah, every time the, the Daily Mail does a headline about dreadful cancer figures, are the other way you could look at it is all those people didn't die of heart disease. Yeah, exactly. Inevitably, we're all going to get something. This is to cheer any listener up, but everybody knows this. So we're all going to get, and therefore the healthcare system needs to be aware of that and needs to be preparing for that. And again, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way we, I think, I think every doctor will have had patients who you just feel that with really, really, really end of the road cases where some clinicians say, let's just try one more thing. And the humanity of some of the aspects of palliative care the lack of investment in palliative care, the lack of research into palliative care, we're all going to go there. This belief that if only we poured more millions into cancer research, we'd be able to cure everything. When the simple fact is an awful lot of new cancer drugs at immense expense bring very little improvement over their predecessors. Now, I can say this because I've been treated for cancer. I'm not against cancer therapy at all. I think I use somewhere in the book the analogy of the First World War and just this trench warfare against death and disease, somehow thinking if we throw in yet more reinforcements, we're going to win. No, we're not. So let's make the important bits right. I thought that chapter about end-of-life care, I thought, was particularly important because, as you just said, we're all going to end up there, but we just don't really talk about death very well as a society here. We don't really talk about what we want from end-of-life care. No, that's right. And again, every doctor will have patients they're aware of who are having a horrible last few years of their life with loneliness or with disability, unable to get about, unable to take part in society. And yet we spend millions on treating the tumour rather than treating the life. And that takes me on to the whole over-medicalisation of, of society, which again, and I've, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, maybe it's part of the, the wonderful success of general practice is that people see us as the solution to, to almost anything. My patients used to bring me stuff that it was a great honour that they brought to me. As a doctor, the temptation to treat them medically was overwhelming. You know, that statement to a, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, an awful lot of what we do actually is far more societal. And I, I talk a bit about the medical practices in Froome and Somerset and also in Bromley-by-Bow in London and so on, where they've put so much accent on social interaction and getting people less isolated. And as a result, things like hospital admissions, hospital costs fall. Feels counterintuitive, but it's the exact opposite of what most of the health service is trying to do. 
the term social prescribing is probably not very helpful because it implies a kind of medical thing. But the, the ideas that underpin it, which are those things you were talking about there, about social interaction, community-focused initiatives, you know, tackling loneliness, things like that, they're obviously something that you feel are really part of the solution to all of this. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea is great. But when I read things like, I remember a headline, Boris jo- when he was Prime Minister, Boris Johnson is to get GPs to prescribe cycling. That just sounds to me completely crazy. Yes, encourage cycling by all means, but what's it got to do with GPs and prescription? The use of the language is all part of the over-medicalization. I refer in the book to the extraordinary work that one pharmaceutical company is doing to research a drug treatment for the symptoms of loneliness, of loneliness. You know, I have to say it twice because it's so remarkably barking crazy. And that doesn't mean I don't understand loneliness is really important and actually there's good evidence that loneliness is as bad for you as smoking and so on. But the but the solution isn't a drug. Yeah. You mentioned primary care earlier, so I just wanted to come back and talk about that a bit more. The book talks really well, I think, about the importance of primary care, community health care and public health. You make a really strong argument about moving money, funding away from hospitals and specialists and greater investment in primary care. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that and why you think it's so important. Well, it's something that's driven me mad for a long time. There's numerous problems. One is general practice doesn't look as glamorous and exciting to politicians. There are fewer stories unless things go wrong. I tell the tale of um, some years ago meeting a senior politician who was telling me about his local hospital where a friend of his had recently had a heart attack and had gone in, you know, had a stent fitted and within 48 hours was in the gym. And he said to me, David, this is fantastic, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it is fantastic. But what would you prefer having that treatment or not needing a heart attack in the first place? And he looked at me as if I was completely mad because you can't compare those things. But if you invest in decent primary care with the prevention that we can do around blood pressures and smoking and obesity and all the rest of it, then you don't have the heart attack. But the trouble is, even the person who doesn't have the heart attack didn't know they didn't have a heart attack. There's no story. There's no drama. So the political will and the media will tends to focus on the drama of the fantastic new development. And we saw last year, as, as you'll be well aware, that research from Norway about the benefits of continuity of care. Very significant differences in outcome, in life expectancy, in hospital admission, if the clinician and the patient know each other. So what do we do? We ignore that. We let our workforce plummet. Every GP is seeing too many people too quickly. Continuity is sacrificed on the altar of rapid access because that's where the headlines were. You get a newspaper headline about, I can't get to see my GP. You don't get a headline about, I'd like to see the same GP. Yet the evidence is there. It fascinates me that the political will is there to pour the money into very expensive new drugs, CAR-T therapies and so on, but to ignore the simplicity and the benefit of what probably politicians see as a luxury, but the evidence says really, really matters. Again, I said this earlier, World Health Organization, World Bank, and numerous other authorities say if you want to improve health outcomes and reduce health inequalities, you invest in primary care. And they all do the opposite. All I was trying to do with the book, apart from change the world, is try and stimulate this discussion, get people just take these issues on board. We've got into a complete mess with the focus in the wrong places. 
Is there anything you think we could do to change the narrative or to get politicians to focus on prevention? Because obviously prevention, you can't see the results of that in the term of a parliament. It's almost like it's really hard to convince politicians to spend money on that because they're not going to get any wins that they'll get positive headlines for. It's one of the almost, it feels, inevitable outcomes of the short-term planning that comes with politics. Yeah, absolutely. I think I quote the story of Desmond Tutu in in South Africa who said, if you've got a a rapidly flowing river and you keep seeing bodies... know, people seriously are floating past. Yes, you can dive in and pull them out, but it's a bit more sense to go upstream and to see why they keep falling in. Yeah, well, that's what the whole of Michael Marmot's work around social determinants of health and so on comes into it. One of the tragedies I found when I was in my GP leadership roles is you get ministers or secretaries of state and you spend time trying to educate them on this stuff and then they get moved on and you have to start again. I know all my successors and predecessors in in leadership will have had exactly the same immense frustration. The drama of hospital medicine, the excitement, it appeals to them, which is why I think that's where their priorities go and that's where the stories are. We treat individuals, but the impact tends to be on a population in general practice. Now, I've tried to make my book side effects as sort of readable as I possibly can, but you'll have failed to have noticed there's over 300 references in there because I wanted to make it really clear that what I'm talking about, there's evidence for it, that this isn't just you know, the, the rantings of a, a long-term GP. The evidence is that you can do things differently and get better results. That's one of the things I liked about it because you do break it down and it is really accessible. Even someone who doesn't know very much about the health service, I think, would be able to understand it. One of the things I particularly thought was really good is the section where you talk about screening and that whole idea about whether we should be screening and doing more harms than good. I thought you explained that really well with the way you broke down those numbers. Great, because it, it isn't as straightforward. I mean, in the last few weeks, we've had newspaper stories about blood tests that will detect 50 different types of cancer sort of early on. Just your heart sinks. I mean, yes, theoretically, that sounds wonderful if there's a test that... But dear God, the risks, the negative impacts that this can have, pretty well all of which will rebound on general practice. You can be pretty sure of that. I remember right at the beginning of my career, really interesting research into something as simple as cervical cytology screening, which showed that giving a patient any result other than it's perfect led to change in behavior, either increased health-seeking behavior or you know, sexual dysfunction or you know, whatever. To be told, oh, it's fine, but we better check again in six months, creates a level of anxiety. And so much of screening does that. So which is why the criteria, the good old Wilson criteria, which every medical student learns about, need to be taken on board. We need to avoid the mass enthusiasm of an industry that, you know, one day, way in the future, we may have Star Trek type machines that can genuinely pick up stuff that matters. But at the moment, we're more at risk of picking up stuff that doesn't matter and worrying people about it. One of the other things I want to talk to you about, you mentioned briefly about health inequalities. You know, During the pandemic, health inequalities have really kind of come to the fore. Everybody seems much more aware of it in society in general. I know obviously doctors have been aware about it. I suspect we're going to start seeing that again now with the cost of living crisis as that's going to disproportionately impact people. So what do you think we need to do about tackling health inequalities? As you said, Emma, it's been recognised for a long time. I mean, Julian Tudor Hart's work way, way back, the inverse care law, that you know those with the most needs tend to get the worst care and vice versa. Though, as has been pointed out, it isn't a law, it's an observation. 
you know, there's nothing that determines this. And in fact, if, and this is an opportunity for primary care networks or whatever grouping of the health service that's in favour this week, because they change so often, to recognise the importance of focusing on those with the most need. I'm, I'm at the moment a non-exec director on a, on a mental health trust. And one of the things we've recognised is the, the fact that the people with the most need tend to make the least fuss. And the people with the, you know, the, the, the most confidence and, and ability in life tend to make the most fuss and make the most fuss to the politicians and so on. And having somehow to resist the pressures and focus on those w- genuinely with the most needs is critically important, which is why the independence of the medical profession, the clinical professions outside politics and so on is so important. We must focus on the people who matter most. One of the things that I found really interesting in the book as well, which is sort of linked to this, is you highlight that healthy life expectancy hasn't really kept pace with overall life expectancy, which obviously means many more of us spend many more years in poor health. And obviously, that's significantly worse in areas of deprivation. You talk in the book about a program in Japan that's aiming to really tackle that, you know, to try and extend healthy life expectancy, which I found really interesting. Do you think we need to start looking at something like that in the UK and what should we be doing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In in Japan, they focus around things like diet and around socialization and so on. It's a very different society than ours, but they've recognized that simply living longer without quality is fairly futile. I can still remember so many of my very elderly patients who had a, particularly in nursing homes or care homes, many of them in their own home, a life spent doing nothing but watching television because they couldn't do anything else. It's not for me to judge it. It's their life, but it just feels that with more support, which isn't medicalizing their care. It's a societal approach. And I suspect as primary care teams evolve, the people we're now calling social prescribers or whatever, we will have much more of a focus on these issues and a recognition that dealing with these things, not involving the doctor, not having to get a prescription to get your bicycle or whatever, but having a real focus on supporting people's lives, you know, as they've done in Japan, could play real evidence. I think it's definitely something to aspire to, isn't it? But it is not something else to load on to GPs who are already too busy to do what they need to do. It's, it's, a, it's a question of recognising that's such an important part. And again, this extraordinary imbalance between the massive funding of some very expensive conditions and the ignoring of this. I mean, and we know it. I mean, we know this this craziness that if you if you're unlucky enough to develop Alzheimer's, you don't get the support that you do if you're luckier to develop cancer. I mean, that's a stupid sentence to have said, but that's the way it is. Your background at NICE, lots of people, when they think about the cost of healthcare, they think about medicine. I mean, obviously in your book, it's about everything. You know, it's about the buildings, the tech, the everything. But lots of people think about the cost of medicines. Yeah, yeah. And you obviously look at the cost of drugs and interventions. And one of the things you're really clear about is that there needs to be greater transparency around drug pricing. Why is that important? And what problems do lack of transparency bring well, there are so many examples of shameful behavior by pharmaceutical companies in trying to maximize profit because of poor availability. But I really do make it clear I'm not one of these people who hates big pharma, who sees the whole thing as an evil enterprise. I've talked about my dad having a heart attack, and I haven't. And um, my brother died in his 30s. He was a GP, and he died in his 30s of leukemia. Today, he wouldn't have done because of developments that have come through pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, I think the pharmaceutical 
certain industry does really important things for society, but then some of their behaviours around pricing are just quite extraordinary and unjustifiable. They're basically priced at the maximum you can get away with. And so an organisation like NICE that would some would look at prices and see, are they justified? And quite frequently, if we said, no, it's not justified, then the price would be cut down to below the, the level we'd said. For me, as you say, everyone's focus on healthcare tends to be on the cost of drugs. And whilst that is very important and frequently unsustainable, things like continuity put more investment into that rather than pouring it into the drugs then you'd actually get better outcomes. For me, it was that mismatch between the different bits of the system that one bit you do look at, other bits you don't look at. We talked a bit about end of life care and like spending more money on palliative care rather than potentially all these drugs. There's a bit in the book, and you also talked a bit earlier about providing all these interventions and treatments to people who are approaching the end of life. Do you think there needs to be a wider discussion in medicine about when to stop and maybe training for doctors needs to change to look at that? Yes, I do. And and this, again, it's not, not, not to save money. I want to focus on what's the right thing to do. And I'm completely fascinated by the fact that doctors tend to choose less treatment for themselves than they do for their patients. This isn't just in cancer, it's across the board. This comes into this whole area, really important area of of genuine shared decision-making, the risks and the benefits of, of treatments with patients, not jumping to conclusions or assumptions about what your patient would want. I talk quite a bit about a work done by a friend of mine in the States called Al Mully, who's developed this concept called preference misdiagnosis. He says doctors are terrible at really understanding what their patients' preferences are, and they jump to assumptions, which frequently leads to overtreatment. A really simple classic example for me is the use of statins. An awful lot of friends of mine who are non-medical, their doctor gave them a statin, therefore it must be doing me good. And then when you go through the, for instance, NICE have produced uh, shared decision aids on things like that, and you can see exactly what the benefits are and what the risks are and so on. They frequently say, I never knew any of that. Yeah, I think I'll still keep taking the statin, but at least (laughs) it's more understanding. And I think the same goes for so much else of healthcare. Towards the end of cancer therapies, when this treatment's failed and this treatment's failed, and the doctor says, well, we'll try another one, do the patient, do the family really understand what the options are, what the risks are, what the benefits are, what the likely outcome is. And yes, so there are some people who do say, I don't care what side effects, I want to live. And that's fine. That's their decision. I don't want to block that at all. I talk about the fabulous story of the rock guitarist Wilco Johnson, who um, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he said, well, what's my choice? I can either have radiotherapy, chemotherapy, spend sort of months vomiting, or I can go on tour. I think I'd rather go on tour, and which he did. And then intriguingly, a doctor in an audience sort of came up to him and pointed out they probably got the wrong diagnosis. But that's, that's <laughs> And in fact, he's, he's now doing really well. It was that decision about how to spend one's life. Because we put vast amounts more research into the chemotherapies, the radiotherapy, the therapeutic end of oncology, rather than into the palliative care support, there's almost trifling amounts of research into the benefits of palliative care. The extraordinary fact that most palliative care units are supported by charity shops 
you know, we're all going to go through this. And the really interesting evidence, I mean, I love Atul Gawande's wonderful book called Being Mortal. If anyone hasn't read that, it's it's a phenomenal book that looks at some of these issues. But he points out that sometimes the prognosis for, for people who get good palliative care is better than people who get the aggressive chemo or radiotherapies or whatever. It's more to do with quality of life, the fear that seems to have got into medics and nurses and so on and nursing homes, people who are very clearly at the end of their life being rushed into hospital, having CPR. This feels unkind and cruel medicine, probably being carried out so that people don't feel anyone can complain against them. It's not how I want to die. I do not want to, you know, when it happens, I'm going to be rushed in to have every possible thing done to me at the last second. That's assuming I'm, I'm, you know, 99 years old and completely on top of things. This fear of death, you know, I hate sounding like like the old GP that I am, but I think at the beginning of my career, we were a bit more accepting of the pneumonias in the in the very elderly person with dementia, that this is, it's probably kind not to treat this. I think litigation and so on has become a real problem in this area. You know, subtitle of my book, How Our Healthcare's Lost Its Way, it feels to me a lot of this approach to death is a perfect example of how we've lost lost our way. This over-medicalization of this sort of last inevitable phase feels extraordinary. And I'm not saying this to save money, I'm saying this to try and improve quality. You say at some point there might need to be a debate in society about aspects of care that might no longer be free, you know, in a system like the NHS. Obviously, you point out that would take a big leap of political courage and would need to be an ongoing process so that new treatments and things were kind of factored in. But you argue that every country is probably going to have to have this kind of debate at some point. How do you see something like that working? I haven't got simple answers to this. It's just if you have got ever-increasing demand, ever-increasing cost and diminishing resources, you see the sort of chaos that we're in at the moment developing and becoming more and more important. And and the tragedy for me at the moment in the NHS is seeing those ever-escalating numbers of people seeking private care, self-funded private care to help with the payment. It just feels an absolute move away from the critical importance But if we can't do everyone, then my feeling is we need to at least start talking about what should we be doing, what might we be doing. I do like the idea of citizens' juries. I think uh, Ireland, the challenge of the abortion issue uh, was put to citizens' juries there. And I think probably to everyone's surprise, found a way through this immensely complex ethical and legal and religious quagmire to find something that the population could move with. It might be a way that we could look at some of these issues rather than pretending they don't exist. Or I've talked quite a lot in the book about the sort of the classic trilemma in that if it's a publicly funded system, you can choose two of quality, affordability or access. But it's very difficult to have all three. And we know this in general practice classically. So if you want affordability and rapid access, well, you could do that. If everyone had a one minute appointment tomorrow, if every patient who contacted the practice came in for a minute, they'd all have fantastic access. It'd be affordable, but the quality would be rock bottom. Or you can choose another two. You can choose quality and affordability and then your access falls off the cliff. And that's how we've tended to run things in the past with waiting lists. But we never make it quite explicit that that's what we're doing. Where is the priority? Is it 
quality? Is it affordability? Is it access? Or is it doing things differently or maybe not doing everything or doing lots of it in different ways? Which is why Froome, looking at some of what are apparently medical issues, but being handled in a social way, might be a way out of this complex quagmire. Obviously, all these things we've talked about today, you know, they're really big ideas and they're really, you know, kind of quite knotty problems, each individual one of them, let alone the whole thing. But as you mentioned there, I mean, it's pretty clear that the NHS is in in quite perilous state at the minute. Based on everything you've learned while researching this book and been thinking about in your careers, what do you think politicians, health leaders, policymakers could do right now? Or what should they be prioritising right now to try and get the NHS back on an even keel? Workforce. We are so desperately short of clinical staff, particularly doctors, nurses across the healthcare system. And the Treasury blocks medical school numbers. The sense of that, the moral sense that we, we go to Nepal to recruit our nurses. I'm not aware that Nepal is so over over nursed they can spare these. We've got ourselves into an extraordinary mess. So if, if it was me making a decision, it would be trying to sort out workforce. That includes the whole team, I think. Several decades have talked about the importance of pharmacists in, in primary care. Huge amount of work that doctors do around things like repeat prescribing and so on that could be developed into a much better working relationship with, with pharmacists. I've always felt pharmacists should actually be part of the team. I think every practice logically, you know, would dispensing practice would be the most logical way forward, but the chance of that happening is nil. But it's bringing teams together. It's focusing on workforce and you know, I've sent copies of my book to both uh, the Secretary of State and to Wes Streeting and the Labour Party. Whether either of their teams will read it, who knows? But I've tried. <laughs> no, I hope I hope they do. Thank you so much, though. I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's been great, and I really enjoyed your book as well. I would urge everybody to read it. Well, that's very kind of you. Much appreciated. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm back next week when I'm speaking to Professor Joanne Reeve and Dr Annabel Matchin about an initiative called Wise GP, which was set up to promote, advance and sustain the distinct knowledge work of primary health care. The initiative is helping GPs to enhance person-centred care and also providing huge amounts of support for those GPs who've become involved in the scheme. So do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice and access many other resources on our website at gponline.com. 